Well, let's take our Bibles tonight and turn to John's Gospel, chapter 19. Chapter 19. <clears throat> We've been working our way steadily through this Gospel. We've come now to the, um, the, the last third of the book, which is occupied with the last week of Jesus' life and its aftermath. At the beginning of this chapter, we've seen the Lord Jesus arrested in chapter 18. We've seen Him taken before the Jewish authorities in the middle of the night against their own law, effectively a mistrial in the middle of the night. No witnesses speaking on Jesus' behalf, again, against the law. Jesus being quizzed and questioned, which was in Jewish law against the law. Him being assaulted and punished and beaten by the high priest's guards, that was against the law because no, uh, no uh, judgment had been made at that point. And in the background, we've heard Peter, Jesus' close friend and colleague, denying Jesus three times in the background, denying over and over again. I never knew the man. And so, as we try to imagine what it must have been like for Jesus in our own human way, we, we, we see Him abused physically. We, we see His heart broken. Apparently, this is all going out. Peter's denial is within sight of the inner court where Jesus is being arraigned. And yet, through all of that, He is in charge of the situation. and all of that, He is in command of the flow of events. And in chapter 19, we find Him brought now before Pilate, and, uh, and now He is being once again arraigned before the Roman governor. Pilate took Jesus and flogged Him. Now, part of the strategy of Pilate here, we need to understand, is that he is not convinced that Jesus has done anything worthy of death. And so, what he wants to do is he wants to kind of do enough to Jesus to injure Him and harm Him, trying to change the minds and the attitude of the Jews who are so insistent that He die, and he's hoping that he can somehow get out of this decision. Pilate here is a very equivocal creature. He, he is a, he's a political animal, and yet he knows that he is to report back to Rome. He knows that Rome has been hearing about his misrule in, in uh, Israel. He doesn't want to overstep the mark. At the same time, he is responsible for maintaining order in the territory over which he is the governor. And so, when he comes out a second time, here we're moving on to verse 6, he comes out a second time to the people. And uh, in verse 5, we stopped there last time, he says, Behold the man. And usually, whenever the pilot, the Roman governor, had spoken, that was enough. Usually, the subjects were subject to what he had to say. But this crowd are not having, not having it. Pilate said to them, Behold the man, verse 5, verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, that is Jesus, they cried out, 
crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate, in his reaction to them, uses sarcasm. He says to them, knowing fully fully well that, that they're not allowed to do this, you take him. Take him yourselves. You crucify him. If you're so dead set on getting rid of Jesus, why don't you take the responsibility of getting rid of him yourselves? Why are you passing the buck to me? I find no guilt in him. This is, the num- this is number three encounter with Jesus. Pilate has declared him to be guiltless again and again and again. And in fact, this is the consistent witness of the Gospels. It was a claim that could very easily have been in its day dismissed or disproved by anybody who knew Jesus closely, and many people knew Him in public and in private, as well as in His home life. Even Judas, the man who betrayed Him, said that he had betrayed innocent blood, Matthew 27, verse 4. Pilate's wife herself had been urging her husband to have nothing to do with, quote, that righteous man, Matthew 27, 19. Herod, Herod Antipas, who was a kind of Jewish puppet of the Roman regime, had found Jesus having done, he said, nothing worthy of death, Luke 23, verse 15. Later on, the dying thief on the cross, hanging beside Jesus, would say about him, this man has done nothing worthy of death. And three times, chapter 18, 38, chapter 19, 4, chapter 19, 6, Pilate declares, I find no guilt in him. Now, New Testament writers are very quick to point out their own faults. You read the New Testament, you read uh, the Gospels. The lead man in the church is Peter. The lead second man is John. And John records Peter's threefold denial of Jesus. Uh, And although he doesn't include the words that were used, he tells us that he denied Jesus with oaths and curses. He swore blind until the air around him was turning quite blue, that he did not know Jesus. The gospel writers are not people who are blind to their own faults and failings. And yet, consistently, those who knew him best, were with him longest, were in his company constantly, said about him, Peter, in fact, said about him, that he was holy, harmless, and undefiled. And yet, it is an essential part of our salvation that Jesus, the innocent one, is, in the language of John Calvin, arraigned before a judgment seat as a criminal, and is accused and condemned by the mouth of a judge to die. It had to be done legally. It had to be done in due process. It had to be done in such a way that Jesus was legally condemned to death by a judge in an official court of law, thereby going and being crucified and coming under the curse of God. That was the salvation plan. 
And why is Jesus' innocence so important to us? Why is it such a big deal that Pilate finds no guilt in him, that his disciples find him to be holy, harmless, undefiled, that even those who are killed with him say he has done nothing worthy of death? Why is that important to us? Well, it's because sin says, uh, the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. No sin, no death. Before sin, no death. The consequence of sin, death, whether it's spiritual death, the separation of the soul from God, or physical death, the separation of the soul and the body from God, or eternal death, which is the separation of the soul and the body from God forever. No sin, no death. And if Jesus had been a sinner, He would have had to die for His own sins. But because Jesus is not a sinner, because He is innocent, because He is sinless, He can step in as our representative man. He can go where the sinful cannot go. As the sinless one, He can stand in our place. He can be our representative. He can carry our sin because He's not carrying His own. He can bear our punishment since the punishment He's enduring is not for Him, for anything that He has done. And thereby, He can offer an acceptable sacrifice to God. One of the things we've seen as we've gone through John's gospel is right from the very beginning in chapter 1, when John the Baptist twice points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. The Passover has always been in the background. The Passover sacrifice of the lambs that were taken, thousands of them, every Passover period were, were led to Jerusalem to be sacrificed in memory of that Passover lamb that died so that the people would be freed from Egypt and bondage in Egypt. The Passover lamb became a picture of what God's Messiah would do for us. He would die in our place. Those lambs were examined by the, by the temple priests. They were examined and if there was one flaw, one fault, they were not acceptable as a sacrifice. To be the Lamb of God who would carry away the sin of the world, Jesus had to be innocent. He had to be sinless. That's why the believer finds it so important as we come across this theme in this passage. Pilate's words, I find no fault in him. And when they shout, crucify him, Pilate says to them again, you crucify him because I find no fault in him. I don't find anything in him worthy of death. And this is good news for the believer, because my sinless Savior died, my guilty soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look at him and pardon me. So here we come then to the innocent before the judge, the innocent one, and we look at the condemnation as it is pronounced on Jesus. 
Things are not going well for Pilate on this day. Up to this point, he's been trying to rouse sympathy for Jesus by having him flogged, or else at least by having him flogged, dressed like a king, he's tried to spark some sense of patriotism. Surely the Jews have got some sense of of, uh, their own identity, and if here's this man who's been called the king of the Jews, and now he's been dressed up like a king, and he's been put given a crown of thorns to make him look like a king, and now he's bloodied and beaten and battered and almost unrecognizable because of what he's been through. Surely, surely their patriotism would say, that's enough now, that's enough now. But it wasn't working. It wasn't working no matter how much he humiliated a fellow Jew, no matter how much he humiliated a messianic claimant, no matter how much he humiliated a kingly figure in his purple robe and crown, no matter what he did, he could not get these Jews to budge. Look at verse 6. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he should die because he made himself the Son of God. Now, it's very interesting. Pilate's job, of course, as the Roman prefect was uh, to maintain local, the local laws as well as the laws of the empire. So, they had him on the horns of a dilemma. Of course, it was possible that calling himself the Son of God wasn't a big deal. He could have been calling himself an Israelite. They were called sons of God. He could have been calling himself a, a, a kingly claimant because ordinary human kings, they were called sons of God. But we know already that in the uh, gospel of John, this phrase, Son of God, has been defined for us. This is the way the Jews understood this term, Son of God. They didn't just think earthly human messianic figure. They did not think earthly human kingly figure. They did not think simply another fellow Israelite. This is what they thought when they heard Jesus making His claims. Back in chapter 5, They said this, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father. What did that mean for Jesus? What did it mean for them? Here's what it means for them. Making himself equal with God. Why was calling himself the Son of God making himself equal with God? Well, I have two sons, and both of my sons have human natures. Do you know where they got them from? Their dad, with a little help from their mom. They got got their human nature from human beings, didn't they? Because human beings only have offspring that share human beingness, okay? So, if he calls God his Father, and if he claims to be God's Son, what does that tell you about Jesus? Everything that God is by nature, Jesus is by nature. He is by very nature God. That's why they said he was committing blasphemy. They understood that when Jesus called God His Father and claimed to be the Son of God, He was actually claiming to have the very same nature 
as God. He had godness, undivided godness. He shared godness through and through. And therefore, he was making himself equal with God. Now, this, this claim, of course, would have gone over the head of Pilate, except that, that Pilate was responsible for order among the Jews. And something about the phrase, Son of God, that's used here made Pilate shudder. We know that the Romans were conscious and aware that there were in the world, um, the pagans would talk about these, quote, divine men, uh, people who walked among ordinary men but had something of a status and a station and an ability and an aura that, that, was set, that set them apart from other people. And Pilate, in his paganism, may very well have thought that's what they were meaning, that Jesus was somehow one of these divine men, that he had this kind of aura of other worldliness about him. And uh, we, we see an illustration of that, by the way, in, in Acts chapter 14, when uh, the disciples were uh, we're going into a, a pagan city, and, and the people said, the gods have come down to us in human form. And so, perhaps by this stage, Pilate's worried. When they used the phrase, Son of God, and he thought, divine men, he might have thought that having had Jesus flogged as badly as he did, had aroused the anger of the gods. We know that he was impressed with Jesus, but now maybe he's wondering, supposing Jesus is some kind of supernatural alien. He'd heard about the miracles. Perhaps he, now Pilate, was getting in over his head, and so he comes back in to Jesus. Follow this. He comes back in to Jesus. Pilate heard this statement, and he was even more afraid. That's verse 8. And uh, he came in back into Jesus. He entered his headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, where do you come from? The implication is, are you from earth or somewhere else, outside? Where are you from? People were always asking this question about Jesus, by the way. Sometimes they meant it geographically. Where is this man from? Is he from Jerusalem, or is he from the six? Where is he from? But John takes the question very seriously in his gospel. He treats it as a spiritual question. Where is he from? That is, he is not of the earth, true, but he's not a supernatural alien either. He is God in human flesh. He is the Word made flesh. John says that right at the very beginning of his gospel. Pilate says to Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate's flesh crept. There's something about somebody not answering your questions. And it got, to, it got to Pilate. It must have made him wonder. Jesus does not answer his questions because he's just had a conversation with Pilate. You can read it in chapter 18, in which he's told Pilate quite a lot about himself. He's told Pilate quite a lot about where he's come from and what kind of kingdom he has, and that it's the kingdom of heaven and so on. He's taught him a lot of stuff there to this pagan man that you can read there in chapter 18. But Pilate had not listened. And do you know there's a principle? God does not reveal new truth to us 
if we fail to believe or to act upon the truth we already know. You know enough, perhaps, to believe, but you don't believe. Don't expect to be given more stuff. You deal with what you know, first of all. Believe what you know, first of all. Act on what you know, first of all. And then there'll be new truth, more truth, more light. But you have to believe it. You have to act on it. So this really bothers Pilate. He gets frustrated now. So Pilate said to him, verse 10, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? He's getting on his high horse now. He's gathered up his strength. He's buttoned his jacket. He's uh, put out his chest, put his shoulders back like his dad taught him to do. He's, he's trying to look even taller and more imposing than he, than he did. And he's towering over this man who's all bound and, and bruised and bleeding before him. And he says, do you know who's speaking to you? Do you understand I am the Roman governor. I have all the weight of Rome behind me. I have all the authority of this world empire behind me. I have the power to change your life. I can make your day or waste your day. I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you. Don't you realize that? And now Jesus speaks. And he reminds Pilate that any power he had had been delegated to him. Jesus answered him, verse 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given from above. He's answering his question. Did you notice that? From above. You just asked me where I'm from. I'm from above. And you would have no authority over me unless you'd been given it from above. The powers that be have power because it's been delegated to them by God. He can take it away from them as easily as He gives it to them. The powers that be are important. They keep order in the world, but they're not permanent. They're not going to last forever. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you by God. God is in control. God is reigning over all. You can do as you will. You can do what you decide. You can do what you desire. You can do your worst, but nothing you do will ever be done outside of that overarching authority and control of God. It never is. It never will. It never can. We strut and fret our little hour upon the stage. We do our stuff we make our plans and so on, and we think that we can do something independently of God. And Jesus is saying, not even a great power like Rome can do anything independently of God. God's authority overarches every other authority. He is sovereign over all. And God and God alone has the authority. That did not absolve Caiaphas of his responsibility as the Jewish leader, though, did not absolve Pilate from his indecision. But Jesus is saying to Pilate, you would not be in charge unless God had put you in charge. But it was not Pilate who had engineered the trial. The one who handed me over to you 
that is the Jewish authorities, the one that delivered me over to you has the greater sin. In many ways, that's Jesus' last comment on Judaism, on the Jews of His day, the leaders, that is. And it's right here that we see the utter failure of Pilate as a man and as a leader. From then on, we're told, he sought to release him, verse 12. He sought to release him. Pilate is not convinced of Jesus' blasphemy, nor is he convinced of Jesus' sedition. He's impressed by Jesus' courage. He's overwhelmed by Jesus' personality. He has reason to fear the crowds, however. They might very well complain to Caesar against him for what he'd done in the past. Pilate's own influence at court back in Rome had been diminished by the death of an influential friend and supporter. He knows he's on his own. And so, although he wanted to release Jesus, he sits down in his throne and the Jews cry out to him, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Being Caesar's friend was a kind of technical title. So-and-so is a friend of Caesar's. That is, they're on his side. He has Caesar's blessing. He has Caesar's approval. You're not one of those people, because anyone who calls himself a, a king opposes Caesar. So, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, and he sat down on his bima, the judgment seat, at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was the day of the preparation for the Passover, about the sixth hour, John says. And Pilate says to the Jews, Behold, your king. Do you notice what Pilate does here? By sitting down, the crowd quieten themselves down. He's sitting as a judge now on his judgment throne. What is the crowd waiting for? They're waiting for a verdict and a sentence. What do they get? They get a verdict and a pronouncement. Behold your king. And once again in John's gospel, the focus is being drawn to the kingship of Christ. Now, Pilate may have been being sarcastic. We don't know. We can't, we can't kind of read into his voice as we, hear, as we hear these words. But as he points to Jesus and says these words, he, he's picking up on this theme that's been going on. Uh, they say he's been claiming to be a king. Jesus says, here is your king. Behold your king. You really think this bleeding, bruised, broken figure is a threat to Caesar? You really think this broken, bleeding human being here is a threat to your religion? You really think that? He's mocking their spurious charge against Jesus. He's mocking their vassal status by virtually saying, this is the only king you're ever likely to have. Of course, he spoke more 
then he realized, just as the high priest had earlier on, that Jesus is, in fact, the anointed and appointed King of the Jews and of everybody else. And yet, this travesty of justice is part of God's big plan by which the world's judgment is confounded by God's judgment of sin in Christ. Well, the last little picture of our text sees the tables turned. The people cried out in condemnation of Jesus, but in fact, they spoke their own condemnation. As they point to Jesus, they're pointing back at themselves. Listen to them. Behold your King. They cried out, away with Him, away with Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. My acting career was very brief. I was about 14, and uh, we used to be part of a thing called the Christian Endeavor, and there was going to be a big Christian Endeavor convention that brought together all the Christian Endeavors all across the country, and they were coming to our town, and they were using our town hall, and they were going to put on a, a play, a passion play, and I, and I, I was roped into to having a part in the passion play. I wonder if you can imagine what part I might have had in the play. My, my, my script and my action was very short-lived. At one part in the play, uh, a crowd of people came in from stage left, and as they came in onto the stage, they cried, crucify him, crucify him, and then they went off again. That is where my acting career began and ended, right there. I was one of those. It's the only part I ever got, the walk-on part. These people, they were there, they had the part, they said the words. Crucify him, crucify him. Listen to what Pilate says. Shall I crucify your king? Can you believe what's going to happen next? It is the chief priests of Judaism who reply. Listen to this. We have no king but Caesar. Pilate must have been, his, his ears must have, his eyes must have nearly popped out of their sockets. His ears must have, he must have wondered whether he'd heard right. Were these Jewish zealots that he'd been working with, that he'd been trying to keep under control all this time, all this time because they were rebellious against Caesar and they were rebellious against him as Caesar's governor? Were these the same people that were so contradictory and contrary, contrarian all the time. Anytime Rome wanted to do anything, they were always resisting. Were these the same people? They valued their independence from Rome. They resented Roman interference in their internal affairs. And listen to them now. Behold your king. Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Do you know what they were doing as the representatives of Judaism? This is what they were doing. Three things. They are breaking their covenant with God Himself, because they believed there was no king but God. Good Jews believe there's no king but God. God is the king. And when they said, we have no king but Caesar, they were breaking their covenant 
with God. They were, secondly, rejecting Jesus as their Messiah King. And thirdly, they were abandoning their faith in the very idea of there ever being a Messiah King in the future. We have no king, period, but Caesar. In their own words, before this Roman governor, they are throwing off finally and forever the authority of their covenant God. They knew, they sang it in their psalms and worship all the time. And they read it in their books, their, their sacred scriptures all the time, that all of the other contenders, Egyptian, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Roman, who came along and tried to assert their authority over them, were usurpers. They had no king but God. The Lord reigns, even over the chariots and the horsemen of Egypt and all of the nations of the world. And when they said that day, we have no king but Caesar, they were betraying their national heritage. They were rejecting the sovereignty and rule of God. They're denying their own messianic expectations based on the promises of God's Word. Cambridge University professor Westcott wrote this, the kingdom of God in the confession of its rulers has become the kingdom of the world. In place of the Messiah, they found the emperor. They first rejected Jesus as the Messiah Christ, then driven by the irony of circumstances, they rejected the whole idea of the Messiah altogether. They joined the world. They become the world. They failed to give honor to God, and rejecting their Messiah King was showing that, in fact, they had no king but Caesar, and they were pronouncing their own condemnation. This is the defining, damning moment for this nation and the world. Now, in Psalm 2, in Psalm 2 we read, why do, the na na why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and against His Messiah? And when the Jews sang that, when they sang that, they thought, well, that's the nations. There's Israel and there's the nations. There's the people of God, and there's the world. On this day, the people of God are only one of the other nations, doing what all the other nations represented by Rome are doing. Now they're not a holy nation. They are collaborating in the murder of their Maker, their rightful liege Lord. And in one action, do you notice, in one action, they are guilty of both of the charges false charges that they had leveled against Jesus, blasphemy and treason. They're blaspheming God by throwing off His authority, and they're treasonable to their own King, the Lord. And Jesus is taken away to be crucified, crucified for their crimes crucified for their sins, although He's innocent. This is the very heart of the gospel, isn't it? We're the guilty ones. He is punished. We go free. 
That's the way it works. So they delivered him over to be crucified. Of course, their word is not the last word either, on God or on Jesus. For the day will come, the day will come when Jesus himself will sit on a bima, a judgment seat. He had told them earlier on in John's gospel, all judgment has been given to the Son. God is the judge, the Father, but He he judges the world through His Son, and He will sit on the judgment seat. He will have a crown on His head, but not a crown of thorns. He will be robed not in a borrowed tunic, but in robes of splendor. And on that final day, men and women, on that final day, the issue will not be what will we do with Jesus? It will be what will Jesus do with me? We used to sing a little chorus when I was a boy. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. One day your heart will be asking, what will He do with me? Tonight we all face even though we're Christians, many of us, if not most of us here in this room tonight, we face this great challenge, don't we? This is what, this is, these are the issues that are at stake. This is what happens when a people, especially people who are so highly blessed as the people of the Jews were, are brought to that place where they have to decide. And maybe you're here tonight and you have to decide. You have to decide for or against this king, this Man, Christ Jesus, what will you do with him? Will you make him king over your life? Will you say, you have authority over me? Or will you say, away with him, away with him? Father, we pray that tonight we would surrender to Him who loved us so well, so long, to such lengths, in bearing such agonies, going so far for us and for our salvation. In His name we pray. Amen.